0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, weekdays 1230 to 3,
2: 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast, I'm Rob Rickenridge. On today's episode, the polls show a tight race ahead of Monday's election, and that creates the potential for a lot of uncertainty once the votes are counted. So how might things unfold? One constitutional expert walks us through the process. Also, the case of Ontario dental hygienist stripped of his license to practice and labeled a sexual abuser, all because he cleaned the teeth of his then-fiancé. Plus, looking back on one year of cannabis legalization and the launch of Phase 2, the legalization of edible products. Well, we had two majority governments in a row as a result of the 2015 election, the 2011 election. But as we saw before that, we don't always get majority governments as a result of our elections. In fact, we've had not only minority governments uh, in Canada, but very, very narrow minority governments, very close elections. Uh, 1972 is a good example. 1979 especially was another good example of that. You have to go back pretty far to find an actual formal coalition government uh, that existed federally. But in those tight scenarios, uh, Joe Clark in 79 had to rely on the Social Credit Party that still existed then. Obviously, the liberals relied heavily on the NDP in the aftermath of 72. So as we face the prospect of another very close election, we have some history and some precedent we can draw on for what might happen. But there is a a process, there is convention in terms of how this all plays out, who gets the first shot of governing, who has the opportunity to demonstrate the ability to govern, and what might send us back in to another election. So joining us to talk about how this all works, very pleased to welcome the program, uh, Philip Lagasse is an associate professor of international affairs uh, at the uh, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Professor, like I say, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much. So, I mean, in in a lot of ways, even though, look, we don't know how things are going to go Monday, but in terms of close elections, minority governments, we've certainly been here before, haven't we?
3: Yes, uh, it's certainly not uncommon. And in the past 20 years, we've seen quite a few of them.
2: In terms of what happens on Election Day after Election Day, I mean, as of today... Justin Trudeau is still the prime minister, and until he resigns, if he, if he loses the election, or they don't get the, the most seats, he, he will remain the prime minister, won't he?
3: Yes, and he can even remain prime minister even if he doesn't win the most seats. So uh, that's where it can get interesting, even if uh, Andrew Shears conservatives win the most seats, if uh, Prime Minister Trudeau feels that he can still continue governing with the support of either the NDP or one of the other smaller parties, he can stay in office and try and test confidence in spite of the fact that his liberals might come in second.
2: Right. And that's interesting because I think maybe people assume that we have some kind of procedure where we declare a winner. Or we have a referee raising somebody's arm. That, that's not how it works, is it?
3: no the referee is the house of commons and the house of commons only meets sometime after an election and really it's uh, it's whether or not the, a prime minister can maintain confidence that ultimately matters constitutionally now by tradition uh, typically as you mentioned uh, the party that wins the most seats is traditionally the one that governs. And as we've seen in past minority situations, even very close elections, uh, a, a prime minister who does not win the most seats will typically announce defeat their defeat on election night and give the leader of the party with the most seats a chance to form government. But that doesn't always have to happen. And we have the, the president from 1925 with Mackenzie King, who decided to keep uh, governing in spite of the fact that his party had come in second.
2: Uh but when we have a clear majority, a clear mandate, like like in twenty fifteen, where uh the incumbent lost, the liberals won a majority of the seats, uh is, is that still a case though where uh the incumbent recognizes the results and, and basically resigns, concedes?
3: So we have a transition to go through. So they'll they'll announce on election night that they can see defeat. They will then signal to the governor general their intention to resign. Then we enter into a transition period where the prime minister remains prime minister in a caretaker capacity. And then the leader that's been commissioned by the governor general to form government becomes the prime minister-designate. And over about two to three weeks, they have uh, uh, time to transition, form a cabinet, meet with senior officials, and then they are officially sworn, uh, and the, the former prime minister resigns that same day, the next hour, uh, the new prime minister is sworn in, as is the new cabinet.
2: So if we have a situation where it's very close, if, if the conservatives had slightly more seats than the liberals, but the liberals still thought they, they could, they can govern, th- does the incumbent get first crack? Is is that a tradition? Is, is that a written rule?
3: Uh, the, the incumbent gets first crack simply because legally they're prime minister, until they resign or are dismissed, And the convention is that the governor general will not dismiss a prime minister who intends to see if they can secure confidence. So it's really up to the the prime minister. They have the full legal right to meet the House of Commons. Um, It's simply a function of their office. They they remain in office until they resign or until they're dismissed. And if they choose not to resign and face the House of Commons, then they have the, the, the authority to do
2: so. What are the obligations then about testing confidence? Is is that expected to happen as as soon as as Parliament is sitting?
3: Well, yes. I mean, so so you'll elect a speaker, and immediately after electing a speaker, you'll go to a throne speech, and the reply to that throne speech is considered confidence vote. We saw this in in twenty seventeen in, in British Columbia when Chrissy Clark. Uh, was reelected with only, about, I believe, a one or two-seat uh, margin right. over the NDP, and she lost her throne speech and went to the lieutenant governor, requested a dissolution of parliament. That was refused, which meant that Clark had to resign, and then Horgan was called to form government.
2: Uh, and by requesting a dissolution, she was basically seeking another election.
3: That's right, and uh, that's where uh, the Crown's discretion comes in, and the lieutenant governor in that case said, no, I mean, the NAP and the Greens have uh, arrived at an agreement, and given how close the election just was, we're going to give them a chance.
2: Uh, So in a situation where, in this case, then, the, the opposition, the conservatives, have slightly more seats, if the liberals aren't able to command the confidence of the House, the conservatives could say to the governor general, then, let us have a crack.
0: Well, only if
3: the Prime Minister uh, loses confidence. Right, right? at that point, after losing a vote, yeah. That's right. So if if Prime Minister Trudeau uh, decide to stay on despite not winning uh, most seats, he loses the the confidence of the House, let's say, as soon as it comes back. He then has a choice. Does he even bother requesting a dissolution, or does he simply resign? In either case, in, in all likelihood, if there's another party that has more seats uh the Governor General will decline to request for a dissolution and call, Mr. Shear. Uh
2: the situation then in, in which we would be into another election, I, I guess that would either be if, if for some reason the Conservatives said, no, we, we don't think we can either, let's let's have an election, or if then not only the Liberals lost a vote, but then the Conservatives lost a vote, we would we would be into an election in all likelihood then, wouldn't we?
3: Right. So if uh if Prime Minister Trudeau attempts to maintain confidence, he can maintain confidence. Uh, then uh, if Mr. Scheer becomes prime minister and he then fails, and this can be anywhere between, you know, six to nine months uh, after two governments have tried and they simply can't make it work, then we, in all likelihood, would end up in an election.
2: So the scenario of a coalition government, then, that's the kind of negotiation that would occur between election day and and whenever parliament sits, that if uh, a party feels as though they can maintain confidence of the House if they get these formal agreements... That would typically be when, when those sorts of things would be worked out.
3: Right. So any government that's in a minority situation has about three choices. They can try and just do it ad hoc. So they work on a kind of case-by-case case basis. So you would, leading up to your throne speech, speak to one of the other smaller parties and see if they could at least support your throne speech and then subsequently your budget if you if it's very tight as we saw in BC and any vote it can be very close then you want to negotiate a more formal agreement a confidence and supply agreement where you you lay out clearly of when people are going to vote for you and where they can disagree and what matters will be considered matters of confidence the third option is a formal coalition as we saw in 1999 in, in Saskatchewan where you actually bring uh, members of another party into your ministry so they are ministers and therefore, you're, you're kind of falling together or standing together.
2: Right. But we don't see that. that that's much more rare at the federal level, isn't it?
3: it is because it's, so there's a lot of disincentive on the part of all parties to get involved in the formal coalition. It, it kind of works to, to every party's advantage, more or less, to either do it on an ad hoc basis or to do it uh, through a confidence and supply agreement.
2: Right, because I guess what we saw after 2006, what we saw after 2008, was the conservatives basically going with the ad hoc option then.
3: Right, the ad hoc option allows the governing party to kind of divide and rule. So they, they have lots of different parties that they can work with, and they know that you know right-leaning parties will tend to support them on certain things, left-leaning parties will support them on others. And in particular, if uh, the main opposition party has lost their leader, uh, then they know that they're in a pretty stable situation until such time as the official opposition can uh, select a new leader. So a lot depends on what uh, w- what occurs following the election those, in, on election night. If anybody announces a resignation, that starts telling us a little bit what the lay of the land is.
2: All right. Well, we appreciate uh, the overview of all this. We'll see what happens uh, on Monday. Philip, thank you so much for joining us here today. appreciate it. Thank you. That's uh, Philip Lagasse of the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, uh, leading experts on Canada's um, parliamentary system and and how this all works. So basically, yes, Justin Trudeau is still the prime minister. And you could see then a scenario where even if they have fewer seats than the Conservatives, they could still try for that opportunity to win the confidence of the House. basically because they're the incumbent because he's the prime minister they would by virtue of that get first crack at trying to win a vote of confidence in the house so as he said there are different ways of doing them you have just kind of an ad hoc approach we'll go issue by issue and hope nobody brings down the government we'll get kind of a formal agreement uh, where a party will agree not to force an election for a certain period so they'll prop you up they're not officially part of your government and then you have the option of an actual coalition where you actually include uh those members of those other parties in your government and that was kind of the idea uh, that came up in 2008 remember that the whole coalition drama uh so that's how it goes um it was interesting the 79 election the conservatives got just barely more seats than the liberals but the liberals actually had more votes and there was a lot of pressure on Pierre Trudeau and, and a lot of criticism after the fact that he basically conceded, that he didn't, didn't attempt to govern, he didn't reach out to, to the NDP uh, to try to remain prime minister, he basically conceded. Joe Clark became prime minister, tried to work with the uh, Social Credit Party, but I think by that point was largely a Quebec-based party, interestingly enough, and... Yeah, there, there was an issue. I forget now the specifics, but there was an issue that came up and the conservatives kind of misjudged how things were going to go. The opposition made sure they had uh, all hands on deck and uh, Joe Clark famously lost a vote of confidence. And then guess who became prime minister once again? Pierre Trudeau had resigned as liberal leader but because the liberals hadn't had a leadership convention. They threw him back in. And of course, he got another majority. Imagine for a second, if you will, uh, if you're a plumber uh, and uh, your, your girlfriend or your boyfriend, you don't live together, but you're in a relationship and they call you up and say, and I, you know, I got a huge problem, uh, you know, the, the kitchen's flooded, big, big, big plumbing problems. So you, you wouldn't think twice about going over there and fixing it. Imagine you're a, a tattoo artist. Would you think twice about giving your boyfriend, or your girlfriend a, a tattoo if they wanted one? Were your hair hairstylist? You know, your, your, your boyfriend's uh, got his, his friend's wedding coming up. You say, come on, I'll, I'll you know, do your hair up real nice. Would you think twice about that? Of course you wouldn't. Now, imagine not only getting in trouble for that, but being labeled a sexual abuser for doing that. Well, that's the situation that Alexander Tanas found himself in. He's a dental hygienist. So what he does is cleans... People's teeth. Now, I think people would acknowledge that in, in some circumstances, there are professions where the professional should not be in any kind of a sexual relationship with the client or the patient. But what happened here is that Alexandra Tanass, was working as a dental hygienist in Ontario, was mistakenly informed that it wouldn't be a problem if he cleaned his wife's teeth... or his fiancée of the time, who's now his wife. He did. And that was against the rules. The rules being that you cannot be in a sexual relationship... with someone then who is considered a patient. And consent is irrelevant. So under these rules... Alexander Tanas, because he cleaned his fiancée's teeth was labeled a sexual abuser and had his license to practice revoked, revoked altogether. He wasn't suspended. He wasn't fined. He was basically told he could never be a dental hygienist again. It's it's insane. It really is, especially since the College of Dental Hygienists seems to concede. This is the same body that's punishing this guy. Seems to concede that it doesn't make sense to consider that sexual abuse. In fact, it was recently an exemption brought in for dentists, which makes this even all the more outrageous. It's a bit of a victory this week uh, for this guy who's just been through hell. He will get to practice while his case is going through the courts. Joining us uh, for some further thoughts uh, on, on where things stand and where things go from here is uh, Seth Weinstein. He is uh, the lawyer uh, representing uh, Alexander Tenassi. He's a partner with Greenspan Humphrey Weinstein in Toronto. Seth, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
2: Uh, let's start with the latest developments. Uh, what, what's happened this week, Alexandra is going to be able for now to to return to practice. Would so Tell us a bit more about this decision.
1: Correct. So, I mean, what happened was we, uh, as you know, we filed a notice of appeal of the the divisional court's judgment um, appealing uh, the decision to revoke his license. And so as part of that process, we applied to the court uh, to uh, get what's called a stay of the revocation, meaning a stay of the order revoking his license so that he is then permitted to practice while his appeal is pending. And so that stay was granted last week. uh, And uh, as as a result, he's uh, able to go back to work and treat patients.
2: All right. So let's go back to, to the beginning of this ordeal for him and how he found himself in, in all of this trouble over something that, that seems like nothing at all. I mean, he's essentially been labeled a sexual abuser because he, he cleaned his, his fiance's teeth. How, how did this come about in the first place?
1: Well, the, there's a long history to it, and the, the long history is that he, um, so his his now wife was a patient of his before they engaged in before they got together, and uh, and once they got together, he uh, he dutifully stopped treating her because he was not permitted to treat. Uh, you're not permitted to treat anybody you who you have a concurrent sexual relationship mm-hmm. with. So he did all the right things, and then was told um, that, the, that the the College of Dental Hygienists had passed a spousal exemption uh, that would allow hygienists, uh, like dentists, are able to do in Ontario, would allow hygienists to treat their spouses as well. And so it was an exemption to the the man the 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 rule that you can't have a concurrent sexual relationship with the patient. And so as a result of that information, he practiced. And the problem was that unlike the dentists, uh, the College of Dental Hygienists in Ontario, although they approved the exemption, it has to still be approved by the government. Um, And it was filed for passage, but it has been sitting on somebody's desk for the last five years waiting for passage. And that's for some reason we're not familiar with. And so uh, he did end up practicing. Even though the exemption hadn't it hadn't come into effect as of yet, wow. that was then seen on Facebook by um, uh, a colleague of his or somebody in the dental hygienist community, and uh, that person then reported him to the college.
2: Yeah, and 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 that's uh, you know really in in many ways uh, ruined his life, and and hopefully um, you know th- this can all be rectified. But what seems then so stunning about it too is that. So the College of Dental Hygienists believes that the exemption should exist, but they're going to punish this guy because it doesn't yet officially exist.
1: Uh, you've got it right and you know and one of the criticisms that the court um, when they uh, although they uphold they upheld the judgment uh, and they did so and they did so on the basis that there is prior case law that exists that uh, upholds the constitutionality of these provisions and so their hands were effectively tied uh, given the level of court we were at but they were very critical of the college for uh, exercising their discretion to prosecute him they have the discretion not to prosecute, and indeed, there are examples of cases like Alex's where they have exercised their decision uh, not to prosecute. Uh, but in this case, they chose to, and once they did, he was subject to the draconian regime that exists.
2: Do you have any idea why they they prosecuted? Why they felt they had to make an example of him?
1: I have no idea. Uh, they're not required to uh, justify their decisions, and uh, and so I have no I have no explanation as to why they uh, elected in these circumstances to do so. There are other examples where they have done so. There is another hygienist that I am that I know of um, um, who has simil- was similarly prosecuted by uh, by the college. But um, but as I said, there is there are examples where they haven't exercised that discretion and um, and allowed that the to continue to practice.
2: So, what's been the impact of all of this on Alexandria?
1: It's been terrible. It's it, as you said earlier. It's you know it's effectively destroyed his life. He's uh, he is in financial ruin. Um, he you know the, the the difficulty is when you when you uh, litigate these issues, you are liable for the costs of the other of the other party. Uh, in this case, the College of Dental Hygienists. So he's. Uh, He's facing facing financial ruin. He's obviously, um, if this if this is upheld, he'll be unable to practice and uh, and suffer significantly as a result of that. And I mean, you know, he's been labeled, as you said earlier, a sexual abuser. And although some are familiar with the circumstances, not everybody will be when they if they search his name and uh, and find that he's been that he's lost a license for the sexual abuse of a patient, which is the furthest thing from the truth in terms of what he actually did.
2: Yeah, I suppose. had some solace to him there's been a tremendous uh, outpouring of support from the public what does what that mean to him
1: I, that meant um, everything to him I mean that's really allowed him to to forge ahead and I think he was really uh, taken aback by the by the public support and he's uh, he's very grateful for it uh, it's allowed him to sort of keep his spirits up and he's hopeful uh, as I am that this this support will result in change at the legislature that will get this exemption that is that is there waiting to be passed to, to get act to actually get passed
2: yeah I mean no one else should ever have to go through this but it- in the meantime but what is he hoping for does he just does he want to return to practice does he want to be able to keep working as a dental hygienist and maybe start to try to put this behind him
1: he would, that would be his ultimate uh, goal is to continue to practice. And, you know, he doesn't want to be the, the pioneer who, 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 got the, who, who succeeded in, in ensuring that the spousal exemption was passed. But, you know, at the end of the day, what he wants is uh, the ability to do what he loves to do. And he really is passionate about his practice and passionate about his patience. And ultimately, that's, where, that's what he wants his focus to be on.
2: All right. So being able to practice again, that's a big step. What, what happens next year? What's the next step?
1: So the next step is we um, have to file our uh, our arguments in support of the it's, uh, in support of the leave application, meaning we have to get permission from the court to uh, to appeal. that's what leave, so we have to seek leave, that's what leave is. and so we have to file those written materials. Once that happens, uh, if leave is granted, then we have the opportunity to make oral arguments before a panel of the Ontario Court of Appeal. Um, and hope that we uh, can achieve uh, the result that Alex really wants. Um, so the next step is the filing of the material and then hopefully an oral argument before the Court of Appeal.
2: Well, let's hope so. Seth, thank you so much for the update. Appreciate it. Make some time for us here this afternoon.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
2: That is Seth Weinstein, Toronto-based lawyer, representing uh, Alex Tanass in this case, this Ontario dental hygienist was labeled by the College of Dental Hygienists of Ontario to be a sexual abuser and had his license revoked. And again, compounding the insanity of this story, in 2015, that same college approved a regulation to exempt spouses from the sexual abuse provision, but it hasn't yet been passed into law. So the same college that has endorsed the exemption is the same college that is destroying this guy's life. I mean, it just, it is so infuriating. He really is to see somebody go through hell for no reason at all. There is no victim here. He did nothing at all wrong. He didn't understand, I guess. He was confused about whether this had passed or whether this had taken effect. And it's, oh my goodness, it's splitting here. Once the college accepts the premise, that should be that. But all it has to be passed into law. So it was was official, but not officially official. So now we're going to destroy your life. Maybe you're a sexual abuser, take away your license. I mean, he he married the woman, right? She was not in any way victimized by this. Uh, You know, it's crazy. Was was he uh, giving up free teeth cleanings in exchange for sexual favors? No, nothing like that. So sure, if you got a situation where someone's doing that, Or someone's taking advantage uh, of a patient, you know, gassing them up and groping them or, or, you know, something like that. Absolutely. Come down hard on that person. But this is not that person. This is somebody who failed to understand, I guess, this weird bureaucratic procedure where the college can approve a change, but it doesn't become official yet until someone else approves the change. But if nothing else, it shows the college to be just vindictive and hypocritical, to accept that the exemption should exist and then to destroy this guy's life. So, just hoping it works out for him. But um, this is just uh, you know just such an, an incredibly uh, onerous thing that he's had to go through here. Just you know the the financial cost of having to fight this all in court, trying to get his his, his job back. And then the shame of being labeled a a sexual abuser, it's just just awful. So big day tomorrow, it is the uh, anniversary of cannabis legalization, an opportunity to kind of reflect on the change that that ushered in and how smoothly or in some cases not so smoothly this was all implemented. Uh look, and credit where credit is due. I, I think that this was a change that was long overdue. The Liberals finally recognized that and, and brought this in. Uh I, I felt they dragged their feet on it a little bit, but it did it, it did happen. Uh now I also think that there were some some unnecessary uh, red tape at the federal level. I think some of that was compounded as well by the approach that certain provinces provinces took. I think Alberta largely got it right. I think Alberta's a lot further ahead than most other provinces. Uh, so I think uh, that speaks to, to the uh, amount of, say, the provinces had over how this uh, all was ruled out. Uh, but on the whole, I mean, it, it was a positive change. and I think a lot of the uh, alarmist talk about how the sky might fall after legalization, none of that really panned out. Now, the other thing that, that um, tomorrow represents is a further change in legalization. Edibles will, for the first time, be legal. But don't expect to see them in stores anytime soon. Again, this gets back, I think, to the issue with some of the red tape that's affected the industry uh, and how quickly uh, license holders were able to, to turn things around once they got direction on edibles uh, to get these products on the shelf. It's probably going to be a few months still. Anyway, joining us uh, for some thoughts on all of this, please to welcome to the program, D- uh, Deepak Anand joins us, CEO of Materia Ventures, a cannabis uh, industry analyst. Deepak, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome to the program.
0: Thanks for having me again, Rob.
2: All right. So let's start with the edibles question. Uh, Tomorrow represents a a change in their legal status, obviously, but what kind of change are people really going to notice tomorrow?
0: Absolutely. So, uh, in, indeed, I echo some of your comments on kind of what we've gotten right so far. Um, uh, so I'm going to focus a lot of my comments on sort of, you know, what's what's to come and perhaps some changes that we can make. Uh, but tomorrow what happens is officially um, Cannabis 2.0 kicks in. And what Cannabis 2.0 is the inclusion of not just edibles, but also beverages and topicals and other products uh, that are non-dried cannabis or cannabis flowers or uh, Or cannabis oils that have existed so far in the market are technically uh, allowed to go online. But as you alluded to, there's still Health Canada still requires licensed holders to be able to apply to Health Canada to for approval to be able to sell these new product forms. Uh, And what that means is that whilst, you know, cannabis 2.0 goes live tomorrow, we might not see products that are topicals or edibles and beverages physically launched until December. Um, and that's, you know, related to the bureaucratic process that Health Canada currently uh, has in place for, for approvals of these products.
2: Right. And so there, there are some pretty strict rules in terms of the kinds of edible products companies can create, the sort of packaging that, that they have to be included in. Um, tell us a bit more then about what, what it is that companies are having to work around when it comes to these rules.
0: The yeah, I mean, so Health Canada has, you know, a list of things that you have to go through depending on the type of product that you're launching. Uh, you know, just because cannabis is legal doesn't mean that it can be actually included in everything. There are limits of how much THC can actually be in in each package. That's limited to 10 milligrams uh, per package. Um, so, you know, if you're looking at, you know, some, some customers uh, in the current sort of, uh, you know, gray market are looking at 20, 30, 40, even 100 milligrams of THC per serving. And that's not something going to be in the legal market. So Health Canada has put a limit on on how much you can have per package. Um, So if you're looking at, for example, a brownie or a cookie or a chocolate, then the most amount of THC that you'll have in that package is going to be 10 milligrams. So if you want to get, say, a 100 milligram dosage, uh, which for some people, you know, that's kind of what they might be used to, then you're going to have to have 10 different packages. Well, that's going to result in, from an industry perspective, is certainly a lot of Sort of compliance with regulations, but but also at the end of the day, a lot of packaging that's going to be required to go into this, uh, and, and so we are going to see that uh, sort of happen. The other thing is there's going to be strict sort of, you know, marketing restrictions around how you can promote your product. Essentially, uh, the promotion of products related to cannabis 2.0 is going to be very, very restricted and limited. Um, And I often get asked this question is, you know, how come we don't have brands like California does on the cannabis, um, you know, sort of, you know, edible side of things or beverage side of things. And, And I think that's directly related to this restriction that Health Canada has put into place. And I think you know, that is something that is going to hold back Canadian companies or, or brands that want to launch in Canada.
2: Mm-hmm. Are we going to get to a three point? I mean, what about the question of, of cannabis vaping? And obviously there's been some concern in the U.S. and, and signs pointing to, to contaminated THC cartridges, uh, vaping cartridges as maybe one of the, the main contributing factors to this outbreak of illness. How does that impact the, the potential for THC vaping in, in, within our legalization framework?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, just for clarity, I don't think it's just THC vapes that have caused these concerns. I mean, there is products that have no THC or even tobacco that are that really to some of these concerns. And so, you know, I think what this, this you know, this, this issue really screams is the need for regulatory compliance. And I think you can expect Health Canada to have a very strict lens around uh, the products that contain, you know, cannabis products that are launched into vapes. I think you can expect Health Canada to look at that very closely in terms of what they might permit to be launched versus what they might not and I think you know this is one of the reasons why Health Canada has an approval process. I think companies that are licensed holders that are you know looking to launch vapes related to either THC or CBD might expect to go through you know sort of a more heightened approval process where Health Canada is going to you know look at this very very carefully Mm -hmm. and and this is one of the things that Rob you know this doesn't exist in the U.S. because the federal government continues to ban it so I think this is this is really an opportunity for Canada to uh, you know lead and show some demonstration on, on, on how we're looking at regulating this. Uh, but this is kind of what, you know, we're seeing a lot of American companies kind of scream for is a need for regulation. Mm-hmm. And I think you can expect that in Canada. I think you will expect more uh, sort of, you know, uh, sights on, on how we go about approving these things.
2: Yeah. And, and just Deepak, some, some thoughts on kind of where we're at a year after legalization. We touched on it at the outset. And I mean, I, I think here in Alberta, we're a lot further along. There's still provinces where it's, it's very difficult to find a retail location to actually buy legal cannabis. So in, in some respects, we come a long way. In other respects, maybe we've got a long ways to go.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was listening to you kind of, you know, make your introduction on on how we've gotten things right. And certainly there's been a lot of progress. I think cannabis legalization has been uh, a significant process that we've made from a public policy perspective as as it relates to a shift Mm -hmm. in mindset. It's probably one of the greatest things that we've done as a nation in, in a very long time. So, certainly something to be applauded there. On the flip side, you know, I live in BC and, you know, from a BC perspective, I can tell you, uh, I don't think people would, you know, fairly agree with that comment that it's been great. I mean, there's still a number of hurdles that you see in BC relating to uh, selling of cannabis through retail stores. And I mean, you know, BC, you know, does have a place as the cannabis capital of at least Canada, uh, if not North America. And it's, it's quite unfortunate to see that uh, a lot of the, the BC companies and entrepreneurs and, you know, haven't been uh, able to transition into the system, whereas just not too far from us in Alberta, it's, it's, it's a whole different picture. I think Alberta is probably the role model for cannabis retail legalization across Canada. I'm not even going to talk about Ontario in terms of the absolute disaster that that process has been from a provincial government perspective. I think finally yesterday, we're seeing the Ontario cannabis store say that they're looking to, you know, open up the privatization model. In my opinion, that sort of happened a long time ago. So certainly uh, you know, great for Alberta, significant moves in Alberta, but but probably not the same story in BC and certainly not in Ontario.
2: All right, Deepak, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate
0: it. Thanks for having me.
2: That is uh, Deepak and Andy, a CEO of Materia Ventures, cannabis industry analyst. Some thoughts from him on what changes as of tomorrow and. Uh, taking a look back at what's changed since October 17th of last year. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob, at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.
1: Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.